You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Content warning. Racism, cancer, and scientific implausibility. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Those wanderers must have looked on Earth, circling safely in the narrow zone between fire and ice, and must have guessed that it was the favorite of the sun's children. Here, in the distant future, would be intelligence, but there were countless stars before them still, and they might never come this way again. So they left a sentinel, one of millions they have scattered throughout the universe, watching over all worlds with the promise of life. It was a beacon that down the ages has been patiently signaling the fact that no one had discovered it. Perhaps you understand now why that crystal pyramid was set upon the moon instead of upon the earth. Its builders were not concerned with races still struggling up from savagery. They would be interested in our civilization only if we proved our fitness to survive, by crossing space, and so escaping from the earth, our cradle. That is the challenge that all intelligent races must meet, sooner or later. It is a double challenge, for it depends in turn upon the conquest of atomic energy, and the last choice between life and death. Are the stars our destination? Long before man traveled from the Earth to the Moon, we wrote stories about space travel, framed in the scientific understanding of the day, about how we might get to journey to other planets of our solar system, what kind of wonders we might find there. But humans being humans, these stories almost inevitably reveal just as much about ourselves as the true possibilities of other worlds. For this first new episode of Season 3 of What Mad Universe, we're going to take a broad look at a whole array of visions of interplanetary travel. So this is actually going to be a bit of a continuation of what we were doing all this past summer, where we were doing a series of little mini-zodes uh, about uh, short stories. Uh, we basically decided to do all the short stories about space travel that we had considered uh, looking over um, in one episode. So, and, and it, so it's going to be an array of different stories from different periods, different historical eras, or not radically different, but a number of different time frames, uh, conveying what people thought of space travel at that particular time in history. Um, I'm Adam Prosser. With me, as always, is Philip Rice. Hello. And uh, as I say, welcome back to uh, What Mad Universe, beginning season three here. So, um, yeah, so uh, Philip actually suggested, I think, most of the stories here. Uh, the final one was my suggestion. Uh, but um, just what just br just briefly, if you could list the stories that we're going over and what made you want to 
talk about them here. Okay. Uh, well, um, I have uh, a few others mentioned here that I've read that I was going to sort of gloss over, but the major ones we'll be covering are Micromiga, uh, 1752 by Voltaire. Let's see. <laughs> Just very quickly list this title because it's so short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, a journey lately performed through the air in an aerostatic globe commonly called an air balloon from this terraqueous globe to the newly discovered planet Georgium Cytus. 1784 by Mr. Vivenair. Yes, that is the title of the story, and it is it is a short. St it's only 20 pages long, so yeah. that's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, that's probably part of the point. But they did like long titles back then. They, they did. Right? I've I've uh, I've read longer titles. Uh, uh, I mentioned I'm doing the tweet thread of like things I've watched and read as Simpsons jokes, and one of the titles I I of a short story I read didn't fit in a tweet i had to like get a picture and quote tweet um, <laughs> yeah anyway exactly. uh then we'll be discussing uh the great moon hoax of 1835 which is uh sort of an outlier here because it wasn't presented as fiction uh even though it's it's ridiculous it was it was actually published in a newspaper as a fact that's why it's called the hoax um we'll we'll talk about that um and uh uh Lastly, for my suggestions, uh, two stories from uh, Stanley Weinbaum, uh, both set on Mars, A Martian Odyssey and um, uh, Valley of Dreams, uh, both from the uh, uh, written in the 1930s. Right. And then just to top it off, that was uh, one that I had suggested was The Sentinel by Arthur C. Clarke, uh, which was published in 1951. Uh, but they're all of a piece. They're all like, as we say, they're, they're sort of showing... <laughs> Uh, different views on space travel at different points in uh, in history, so, or in in yeah, going back to as you say, 1752. Um, it's actually interesting this whole thing about you know going to the moon satirically and meeting a race of giants. That like that that was a thing. I remember that's uh, that's actually an aspect of uh, the stories of um, uh, Baron Munchausen as well. Uh, yeah, he, he actually um, yeah, his moon story is is lifted directly from uh, true history actually. Oh, okay. um, or at least much large sections of it, like the sorry, uh, true history or Cyrano de Bergerac. True history. Oh, okay. Yeah, so like the the giant birds with the with the giant uh, uh, three headed vultures. Um, yeah. Yeah, which that's you should point out that's Lucian's true history. Which yeah, you, yeah. Uh, yeah, which which is a really old. That's ancient Roman. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mentioned about. that at the top. Yeah, that's. Um, he was a uh, Assyrian Greek uh, philosopher and writer, and he wrote um, this story, sort of um, uh, parodying travelogues that people took to be true, or like people who thought that the Odyssey was based on real history or what have you. Um, right. So he just wrote this ridiculous thing and called it true history. Right. Um, and that, that, in that one, he goes up to space on a water spout, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Right? Yes. A yeah. hurricane takes him into takes him to the moon, and then he travels by ship to various other places and then that's only the beginning of the story and he comes back to earth and goes to the afterlife and a lot of weird islands anyway it's fun hmm. um uh right. but yeah uh now let's get into the to the ones that i reread for this 
Um, yeah. uh, by the way, we should be clear here. We're, we're adopting a new policy or a new uh, format for this season. So basically one of us is going to read the book. Uh, and basically, so the other is going to be asking questions. We're going to alternate back and forth. But so in this case, uh, Phil has read some of these stories and I have not. And actually, uh, I have the ones that I did read, he has also read. But so Phil is the expert this time out. Um, but we're, we're going to be going back and forth, uh, you know, with one of us reading a story and the other one sort of interviewing them. And, and hopefully that'll, that'll provide a bit of a window because we'll have someone who will be the audience surrogate who has not necessarily read the story and getting more information about it. So uh, yeah. that's how we're that's how we're doing it this time, right? Uh, so this is uh, Micro Miga by Voltaire, uh, 1752. Um, Micro Miga just means uh, small big, um, which is sort of uh, fits with the theme of the story. But it's also the the title, the uh, name of the the title character, uh, the name of the main character of the book. Uh, he's an alien from the from a planet orbiting the star Sirius. Um, he is a giant, and I don't mean like the other kinds of giants we talked about. Uh, I mean like really giant. He is uh, 120,000 feet tall. Uh, Mount Everest, by contrast, is only 29,000 feet tall. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's a big guy. <laughs> Uh, it, it takes, uh, this story, uh, works with the concept that, uh, the bigger the planet, the bigger the people on it. Um, mm -hmm. so this planet is really big. So the people are, uh, big to match. Um, so, um, uh, it, it starts off, uh, just describing his life. He's, uh, he's 450 years old, nearing the end of his infancy, um, and uh, he's dissected a bunch of small insects that it describes as no uh, larger than 100 feet in di diameter, which could only be seen with uh, um, specialized microscopes. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he wrote a book um, about it, but uh, it angered some people. Um, uh, they smelled heresy and uh, went after it. Um, it was on uh, the uh, form of fleas being of the same nature of the, as the form of snails. And that really pissed people off. Uh, and uh, he went on, uh, he, was, he was tried for it. Uh, it says, um, uh, finally the Mufti had the book condemned by jurisconsults uh, consults who had not read it. And the author was ordered to not appear in court for 800 years. <laughs> um, once again, this is a very satirical story. Um, yeah. So, uh, Micro Miga, along with some other companions, which aren't really, I don't know why Voltaire decided to give him companions since they don't do anything in the story. Um, but, uh, they leave the planet and make their way by across the, across space by leaping, uh, literally just jumping. Um, mm. it says our Voyager was very familiar with the laws of gravity and with all other attractive and repulsive forces. He utilized them so well, whether by help of a ray of sunlight or some comet, he jumped from globe to globe like a bird vaulting itself from branch to branch. He's doing the, he's big enough that he can jump from planet to planet, basically. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he makes his way to our solar system and lands on Saturn. Uh, the people there are described as comically small dwarfs, only about 6,000 feet tall on average. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so that's that's a little shorter than Mount Everest. Hmm. Um, so uh, 
he builds a strong friendship with the secretary of the Academy of Saturn. And uh, he's sort of the secondary main character in the story, even though he doesn't get a name. Um, the, uh, the two have conversations about their relative abilities. Uh, like the Saturnians live for about 15,000 years, while the Syrians live for 10 million years. Um, uh, the Saturnians have 72 senses, while the Syrians have nearly 1,000. And in both these cases, in terms of lifespan and how they perceive the world, both um, say it's not enough. They're just not satisfied with the amount of um, the amount that they can sense in the world, and uh, every lifetime just feels so fleeting. You know, ten million years a, um, and it just goes by like a that. A book from uh, 1686, a while back, called uh, "Conversations on the Plurality of Worlds" by uh, Bernard Le Bouvier uh, de Fon uh, Fontenelle. Bernard Le Bouvier de Fontenelle. Um, okay. And this was sort of, it's like a pop science story, but framed as a fictional conversation between two people. So it's like uh, an educational book um, okay. based on the, the science of the day, which is uh, cosmic pluralism. They thought every rock in the universe basically was inhabited uh, by people. Um, and it said that uh, Mars, since it has no moons, must have glowing mountains and luminescent birds to allow the Martians to see at night. Hmm. Um, anyway, thought that was kind of interesting. Kind of cool. Uh, back to yeah. Micro Miga. So uh, finally they get to Earth, and uh, they walk around for a while. They, they cover the entire Earth in a short time, just walking. Um, and they, um, they despair of ever finding life, much less people on it. Um, uh, the dwarf, uh, the Saturnian, uh, complains of that the islands, lakes, rivers, and whatnot are all irregular instead of straight lines uh, that they are on Saturn and Jupiter. Um, then by accident, Mikro Mika drops some stones from his diamond necklace, and the Saturnian gets out a microscope, and through the microscope spots a moving creature, a whale, and they, um, they're just amazed that anything so small could be alive. Um, and they ask if it has a soul, if it's like the dominant species on the planet, uh, but they decide no. Uh, they, but they see another uh, thing of a similar size and discover that it's not a creature, but it's an artificial thing made of wood that has many creatures on it uh, who are even smaller. Uh, and this is a band of philosophers returning from the Arctic Circle. Yeah, they, they, rig, up, uh, they rig up devices to, to communicate with the philosophers. And uh, there's sort of a back and forth... Uh, with the philosophers, there's there's one joke where um, uh, the philosopher quotes Aristotle in Greek, and uh, the giant says, "I don't understand," or Mikromigas says, "I don't understand Greek," and uh, the philosopher says, "Neither do I." Um, one should always cite what one does not understand at all in the language one understands the least. <laughs> um, once again, very satirical book. Uh, yeah. So they have uh, discussions with each of these philosophers on what the soul is. And uh, say the Cartesian says it's pure spirit uh, and uh, is full of uh, metaphysic. all the um, idea, you know, all the knowledge it would gain in life is already present in the spirit and has to relearn them through life. Mikro Omega says, doesn't seem worth the trouble. <laughs> um, and um, uh, yeah, so uh, it, it just sort of goes through these different philosophical ideas and sort of um, makes fun of them. I'm not going to go through all of them. But it finally yeah. lands on um, uh, 
uh, yeah, someone who's, who quotes uh, Aquinas and says that all uh, all things in the universe, including Sirius and Saturn, were put there for man's benefit. You know, humankind's benefit. Um, and uh, so, at this, uh, Mikromiga and the uh, Saturnian just laugh so hard they drop the ship. Um, and uh, have trouble finding Ganic, but manage to, to pick it up. Um, and they decide to, you know, these people are really arrogant, but uh, he's going to sort of um, um, make them a little uh, philosophical book about uh, uh, the meaning of everything. And uh, the story ends by uh, uh, it's taken to the uh, uh, Academy of Science in Paris, uh, where uh, the secretary opens it and there's nothing but blank pages in it. And he says, ah, I suspected as much. <laughs> so this definitely sounds like um, Voltaire was doing a parody of enlightenment thinking. That seems to be the target of what he was, what he was, you know, aiming his, his jabs yeah, at. Yeah, well, enlightenment and basically a bunch of philosophical sy systems. I mean, the one that causes them to laugh is, is Thomas Aquinas and, Right. The um, anthropocentric well, view of things. Yeah, because what you've just described makes it sound like it's very much trying to emphasize that the universe is bigger and stranger than you know humanity. And if you have this very anthropocentric view of humanity, you're you're thinking too small. Like d literally saying, "Oh, this guy who's like 120,000 feet tall, and li there's all these other planets and all these other people, and and here we are saying, oh yeah, and and of course they're tiny specks to him. I, it, that feels like, without having read it, that that's what he's emphasizing. The oh yeah, yeah, that's like, that's the entire point. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's all about um, uh, making mocking the the arrogance of that sort of thinking. Hmm. Which is very um, interesting because that's um, like it's as you say. You look at all these stories from this era, like space travel. It keeps being used satirically and 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 you know it's in a comical way. It's not framed as like here's a serious science fiction story with serious ideas. But this well, does uh, feel Somnium like sort of was. Uh, Somnium was more uh, like this is what creatures in that environment would look like. Um, okay, but yeah. Huh. Otherwise, well, for the most part, yeah, it's more. It's like most science fiction does, but even more so, where it's commenting right. on on human human nature. But but there's no attempt to be like to take science reverently. Like it's not even even for the time, it's not hard science fiction. No, right? it's not it's not an attempt to be like this is what it might actually be like to travel through other worlds. It's here's how I can expose my big ideas uh, in a in a in in a way that almost I mean. Maybe people were different in the 16th and 17th centuries, but it feels like you're not meant to take it seriously even then, right? Like you're no. not meant to say, "Oh yeah, this is vaguely plausible." Well, <laughs> it's I mean, meant to, to be, be like fair, a... neither is Star Wars. I mean, no, it's about well, as but... it's only slightly less plausible than Star Wars. Yeah, but Star Wars is significant of our time because it was kind of a reversion to an older mythical form of storytelling, mm -hmm. whereas science fiction post World War II, which we'll talk about. Uh, no doubt in a bit it was meant to be like well we're going to frame this in a way that people would understand as plausible even if it's not plausible the popular conception of science is such that this is in line with it and i mean i guess in you know you, in 1620 and 1750 you, you don't have a lot of lay people who are you know versed enough in science to actually 
you know, maybe take this seriously. So I guess it's a little hard to pin down, but I feel like the people who'd be reading this would know that, you know, like it's meant for the more sophisticated types Mm -hmm. and they would know that this isn't real, you know, this isn't scientifically real. And in the case of the Voltaire story, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's explicitly kind of, exploring the ideas around science it sounds like and it's, yeah. it's framed as a very whimsical kid story kind of concept and yet these are pretty serious ideas like that's a that's a big idea to be exploring yeah uh speaking of big ideas we'll take a break now to hear from some other podcasts and we'll be right back with what mad universe Hey guys, you know what's better than video games and beer? Cat videos? Be Arthur? Incorrect! Nothing! The answer is absolutely nothing! Alright, alright. You know, actually, I do think you're right. Agreed. We're here at the Dogcast. We podcast about video games and beer. And beer and video games! Available weekly on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Be Arthur? Yes. Hey Benito, I've been reading the Bible lately, and nobody ever told me how many talking dogs and wizard battles were in this thing. Well, Chris, you know what I always say. If you can understand Star Wars, you can understand the Bible. Apocrypals, part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Uh, but speaking of um, sort of hard sci-fi, uh, not really speaking of it, but I, I like to joke that this next story is hard sci-fi. Um, <laughs> a journey lately performed through the etc. Um, yes, hard sci-fi probably- for 1750 or whatever. Uh, yeah, 1780. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by Mr. Vivenair, which is a pseudonym. Uh, we don't know who wrote this. Um, um, it's uh, it concerns a hot air balloon, uh, which had just been invented the year before this came out, um, or like they they had like been experimenting with it a while, but the like the first manned flight was a year before this came out, um, and uh, it travels to uh, the planet Uranus or Georgium Sidus, as it was called at the time, named after King George III, um, which had just been discovered uh, as a planet uh, a few years before in 1781. Um, It it was known to be there, but they weren't sure what it was. Like, it was mistaken as a star or a comet. But uh, Sir John Herschel, the astronomer, um, figured out for the first time that it was a planet and sort of proved that it was a planet. Um, and it was named Georgium Sidum, uh, Sidus after, uh, after <laughs> King George III. Uh, mm-hmm. Sir John Herschel was, uh, was an interesting guy. Um, uh, of course, um, major, um, astronomer, you know, major figure in astronomy, but he also believed a lot of really wacky things. He was a big proponent of the idea of cosmic pluralism, which we've mentioned. It's the idea that, uh, every planet is... Uh, inhabited by uh, creatures similar to humans, um, and uh, but he also thought the sun was inhabited, um, uh, and uh, he thought that it was originally thought that the sun just um, wasn't actually hot in and of itself, but sent out heat that heated things up, or sent out like I don't know waves that heated that heated certain things up, and that was why mountains weren't as hot as the ground on Earth, because they weren't mm. made of the same material. Um, okay. Then when that was sort of disproved, uh, he said uh, the outer layer of the sun is really hot, but then there's a um, protective layer in between that, and underneath is a world where people live. But to survive the pressure, they'd have really big heads. Hmm. 
So instead of just saying maybe the sun isn't inhabited, you, you know, you go to the those extremes. <laughs> um. That's funny, yeah, because he is an actual astronomer. He's not just doing wacky. So so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe the the you know prevailing actual scientific knowledge of that time wasn't that far off from the kind yep. of stuff that Voltaire was writing. <laughs> Yeah, uh, John Herschel will come up uh, later for later books. But uh, yeah, this one's quite short. It's only uh, 20 pages. Um, uh, the um, I say it's hard sci-fi because it's it's based on sort of recent discoveries, uh, the hot air balloon and uh, the planet Uranus. But it's not, you know, it's a balloon going to Uranus. It's not. Yeah, yeah. Um, like I'm sure even at the t yeah. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't think they actually thought a balloon could go up to. <laughs> yeah. Um, to another point. So uh, Uranus here is actually uh, much smaller and closer than scientists assume. So that's how uh, the narrator manages to get there. Um, so I guess it's a second moon. I don't know. It's it's a little confused, um, and it's uh, it's tide locked. So uh, one side always faces the sun, and one side is always in darkness. The story itself is sort of a um, a low grade Jonathan Swift sort of thing. Um, it's uh, it's a, a parody of the court of uh, the court of King George the Third of Britain. So it's you know the the planet uh, being Georgium Georgium Sidus is you know relevant to what it's about. Um, but the 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 satire is sort of a little too on the nose. Um, yeah, here the uh, Uranus is called in the natives Neil Takarf, and the ruler is King Hee-Hee-Hee-Hee-Love-Joel-Tered. He, he, uh, <laughs> a lot of nonsense words in this. Uh, so yeah, the Neil Takarfs have two faces and two bodies joined at the back, and uh, one presents their public persona, and the other expresses what they really think and feel. So <laughs> they're two-faced. You know, yeah. it's it's not the most clever of satire. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> no kidding. Uh, and uh, they absorb sunlight, uh, and it makes them grow like plants. But unlike plants, they shrink instantly when they're not in sunlight. Um, so uh, the Neotokarps on the sunny side of the planet, or the Philly Fist side, uh, grow to a gigantic size, uh, again with the giants. Um, but uh, uh, particularly in the court of the king, uh, where the effect is magnified, and that's why the court was built there. Um, but... Uh, out of, those out of favor are banished to the dark side of the planet or uh, Grimola fist and shrink down. Um, the narrator expresses a wish to go to the dark side, but he's denied by the king and then just decides to go home. Uh, not, not, much of, not much of anything here other than being one of the very few stories set on Uranus. Even in modern, like, because it had just been discovered, it was discovered late and... Uh, when we finally decided on the name Uranus or Uranus, it's a, it's a dumb name. Uh, <laughs> I know it's the name of a Greek god, but you know, it sounds dirty. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not often featured, like even subsequently featured in in science fiction. Well, Marvel Comics had a character from Uranus called Marvel Boy. Yep, uh, the Uranian. Yeah, I mean Uranian it's not it's not man. absent. Yeah. I, I've but. Uh, like, I've read stories from, like, the 50s that go to every planet in the solar system and the life there, but Uranus just has frozen plants. Yes. Or well, plants that thrive in the cold. Right. That's why they should change the name to Eurectum. <laughs> yeah. 
Can we say that? <laughs> Professor Farnsworth will tell us. Why not? It's a scientific word. It's perfectly cromulent. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Not not much else about this story. Uh, the I have here in my notes uh, the Neil Takarfs are sun worshippers, which makes sense since it makes them grow instantly. Um, and says uh, their mode of conversing consisted chiefly in gestures, but aided by language somewhat similar to Chinese, having no alphabet. What Chinese has letters? Uh, I guess but, <laughs> I guess they possibly meant like an ideographic instead yeah, yeah. of uh, alphabet. But far, but far more expressive than theirs, each word signifying as much as a whole sentence with us. So yeah, that's all I got on that one. <laughs> yeah, uh, not much to it. Um, I think it's interesting historically, but the story itself is a big nothing. Right. Well, that's clearly, as you say, it's the case of well, here's the hot new scientific trends of. 1784 so we'll put it in a story right yeah but it yeah, is that... interesting that it was expected that a scientific that a science uh, scientific romance of the time would have all these satirical elements that it would be commentary like there's again there's no attempt to say yeah this is what it's actually like it's just here's some even though he's he's riffing on you know the science <laughs> he's he's still going back to the uh, the the swiftian satire right yeah yeah or attempted swiftian satire <laughs> yeah huh, okay. it's it's not it's not exactly jonathan swift material mm -hmm. um anyway uh uh next is actually sort of a, a divergence as you were saying a lot of these are sort of more focused on the satirical this like the overall thing is is sort of satire but um it's sort of more focused on the nitty-gritty uh life of uh, of the moon um this is the great moon hoax of uh, 1835 and uh, as i said this is the only one of these that was not published as fiction it was um it was presented as fact in uh six articles published in an actual like legitimate new york newspaper called the sun that was around at the time um and yeah they all purported to be genuine um it's uh, it's believed in hindsight that it was written by a journalist named Richard Adams Locke, and uh, the purpose would have been to uh, drum up sales for the newspaper. <laughs> Apparently, this was a thing that just happened. Sometimes newspapers just put out lies, like <laughs> uh, fake news. Uh, yeah, literally. Uh, but just to sell newspapers, and then you know they actually report on actual news, presumably mm -hmm. after that, though. <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah, a weird it's... thing that that would get you to read the newspaper, but yeah, uh, we have nothing but bullcrap. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it also might have been uh, a satirizing, um, sort of overexcited scientific um, things. Apparently, there, there was a uh, article from a little earlier saying, you know, there was all these formations on the moon, or like discolorations that they saw in telescopes so it must be like forests and stuff um so it might be a satire of that but uh, it goes much further um uh so the articles uh, start off fairly normal the first uh two or three are about um the first one or two rather are about um uh the discovery of a new method of building telescopes uh invented by sir john herschel's uh, his son, like, um, who was also named Sir John Herschel. So he was a real person. 
Um, they so they just attribute this fake thing to him to build up credibility. Um, but yeah, the story, the articles get more and more extravagant. Uh, talk about the discoveries that they see on the moon. Um, and uh, yeah, the whole story, like it's not really a story. It's just a bunch of um, uh, descriptions of uh, sightings. Um, the first uh, animals they see are the uh, lunar unicorn, um, which is what it sounds like. It's like a donkey-like creature with a horn. Uh, there's also bipedal beavers, um, and uh, most notably three uh, species of increasingly advanced uh, bat-winged humanoids. So they first discover sort of uh, upright monkeys uh, or apes with, um, it's it's not like arms on the back, it's like um, uh, the, the oh, ribs all come out of one central part on the back and then so they're like fit, spread out. Extended fins almost. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and they, they go down to the bottom of the legs, but taper down. Um, and so they, first they discover, uh, sort of ape-like ones, then more advanced looking ape-like ones that seem to have some sort of society. And then finally sort of, um, angelic human ones, but with, still with the wings. Um, and, uh, there's also a mention of a, uh, temple that sort of, um, uh, built in the shape uh, depicting some sort of great disaster, and it's sort of speculated that this might be a forewarning or a description of something that happened to the moon or that might happen to the earth or, you know, sort of leaving that open. Um, uh, one interesting thing about uh, uh, the moon creatures here is that um, because there's the thinner atmosphere that they predicted that the moon would have, uh, light is a lot more extreme, so when there's sun, it's really bright. Uh, so the uh, moon creatures, most of them anyway, have uh, a sort of flap of skin that's connected to their ears and um, can raise and lower over their eyes, uh, which is sort of similar to some of the ideas that uh, Kepler was talking about in his story about how the uh, moon creatures would have... Um, you know, how their legs would be shaped to, to suit the gravity or uh, how the heat, they'd have, like, porous skin to withstand the, the heat and cold. Okay. Um, so uh, the moon hoax uh, was believed at the time by at least some people. Uh, it definitely increased sales of the, of hmm. the sun, uh, though a lot of the subsequent stories are exaggerated and it's hard to get actual numbers on this. Um one interesting thing is Edgar Allan Poe uh, was really mad at this story because he tried to do his own moon hoax just a few months earlier uh, with uh, what's been eventually published as The Unparalleled Adventure of One ha Hans Fall, which is about a man going to the moon in a balloon. Um, <laughs> and uh, it sort of uh, ends with a promise for more, but I guess because it didn't really take off, so to speak, sorry. Um <laughs> Uh, it was it was overshadowed by this much more extravagant moon story, mm -hmm. um, even though Poe's is probably it's an actual you know story, um, right? Like it's it actually well, has like, like characters and stuff. Yeah, that's like as we we we, uh, we did the um, uh, the story of uh, what was his novel there? Um, the, uh, Arthur Grown Pym. 
Arthur Gordon Pym, narrative Arthur Gordon Pym. Uh, and, and he also wrote Message Found in a Bottle, which was a, a post story. And they're all about sort of people recounting supposedly true events that happened to them in strange places in the world. Yeah, so yeah. On. Yeah, um, uh, so Poe accused the son of plagiarism, um, mm. though that didn't really go anywhere. And apparently later in his life, uh, he wrote Locke into uh, his comedy series, The Literati of New York City. So he just mm. sort of bad this guy in fiction. <laughs> Which is a little petty of him, but that's yeah. cool for you, I guess. Uh, yeah. But no, it was... Yeah, so that's really interesting because, you know, the way you're describing it, it's slightly less silly than some of the things we've talked about, but it still seems a little like literally unicorns, right? Yep. Um, and the fact that it was sort of done with... A oh, I didn't mention the most ridiculous thing. One of the species yeah. they see on the moon are just sheep, like earth sheep. They don't even have the okay. flap of skin. They're just amazed that they see these sheep on the moon. <laughs> that's that's sheep for you, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but but just the fact that, yeah, like they're trying to make it semi-plausible, I guess, in the sense of being a hoax. Or maybe they weren't, because maybe they wanted to, you know, twig to people that, you know, hey, this isn't real. Yeah, obviously. yeah, it gets, it gets more and more ridiculous as it goes along. Like I said, it starts off a little plausible. They also um, start looking at other parts of the solar system uh they look at saturn's rings and find that they have uh seas and mountains on them hmm. like so i guess like a flat plane with like um yeah no exactly it's it's that you know that's so then there's the question of like yeah it's it's we're gonna print an obvious made again you say i say an obvious one but in 1835 maybe people bought it but you can see it feels a few like people a at least did uh, it yeah. seems to be exaggerated how many people bought it, but uh, or yeah. like how many people both believed it and literally bought the newspapers. But it seemed yeah. to increase circulation of the newspaper. But you can see the shift here, though, because from the last one, it was like we're going to grab all the sci latest scientific discoveries and put it in a story that's a bit silly. Here, it's still silly, but it's like hot off the presses here's the crazy new scientific discovery so it's almost like that's become more of background life the background of daily life of new scientific discoveries all the time we're well into the enlightenment at this point right yep. like it's we're in the 19th century now you know people are making scientific discoveries all the time and it's only going to increase as we go along so people would maybe be used to the idea of hey we're publishing new scientific facts that we've discovered right to the yep. point where they could make it into a hoax Oh yeah, John, uh, Sir John Herschel II uh, uh, read the story and commented that uh, he was amused by it, basically, uh, and that um, uh, especially that it was, you know, way more extravagant than anything he would actually find in his life. So he was sort of he was amused by it. Which, uh, if you're going to print a fake story featuring a real person, I guess that's the best reaction you can hope for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They, there's been a number of stories where they've they've had a real person in it, and the person had to comment on it. <laughs> yeah, they usually had a good uh, they usually had a good sense of humor about it. But depending on what happened, mm -hmm. uh, wonder how Anne Radcliffe felt about Vampire City. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, eh, she was dead. Yeah, well, oh, fair <laughs> enough. Um, so then, moving on. So jumping forward a hundred years, almost exactly to 1934. Uh, with a Martian Odyssey, I'll take over here because we both read this this one and and the follow up, the Valley of Dreams. Uh, yeah, but uh, I just want to uh, th this I read as part of my uh, deep dive into public domain Mars stories. Uh, this is later than most of the month that I read. It's 1934, but uh, 
both of these stories are in the public domain, so that's why I checked them out. And I really uh, latched on to both of these. Um, I've drawn, like, every creature from these two stories. So. Oh, okay. Well, that is the thing about these stories. Um, in in um, what we think of as science fiction, it's, you know, it's somebody explores a strange new planet and they find strange new creatures or civilizations or something like that. There's often, you know, w- when you get to the post-World War II era, you get um, sort of a, you know, oh, what does this mean? What is the big epic theme what is the what is the deep significance and how does it relate to our world and you know commentary on you know deep thoughts about things um but there's also the idea of just well what if we explored a world and it was what was it like what kind of weird things existed in this world um and uh this is sort of the early idea because you know by the in the 30s you were deep into the pulp era it was very much you know flash gordon buck rogers and and uh it was much more about telling a thrilling adventure story as we've discussed in previous episodes they'd often you know take a western and just transpose it into outer space that became a a cliche i, I guess that actually came along a little later but the same basic well, principle already existed. by the 50s it was a cliche i mean yeah 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 and 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 i mean um of course you know we're well into the era of um of uh uh, uh edgar rice burroughs and and all the the sort of uh swashbuckling uh science sci- sword and planet science fiction um so you know you don't generally turn to 20s and 30s for like realistic pulp fiction uh science fiction um and these aren't realistic either but it you can definitely see him laying out the groundwork for the kind of stories uh that you'd see later because it's about just uh an expedition to mars and it's just a guy who actually he's he's going away from the expedition his his his, uh his rocket crashes uh, and he has to make his way back or he's hoping to get rescued by the other by the main expedition but uh, he has to, you know, travel across a long distance through Mars uh, to get to um, to get back to the rocket. Um, but he meets um, a number of beings, including one that becomes his companion, a being named Tweel, which is described as being somewhat ostrich-like. Uh, yeah, but it's also described having... as superficially ostrich-like when you look at it at first, but the more you see it, it doesn't really look like an ostrich. It's just sort of vaguely shaped like one. It's actually... Yeah. Uh, like all Martian creatures in the story, it's it's as much plant as it is animal. Yeah, it's supposed to be a yeah plant animal hybrid or a, an animal that with plant like characteristics. And one of those is that whenever it does a huge, it can hop these gigantic leaps and, and cross the cross the distances really fast. And it likes to land on its nose or beak, uh, which may also be its roots or something and and later he describes it when he's asleep as they're traveling it it, it tweel sort of plants itself in the ground nose first uh which suggests it's like it's it's its root basically mm-hmm. um which is kind of a funny way of doing it but it's it's very very strange and he, anyway it's a series of encounters with very strange beings uh including a tentacled being that can take the shape of you know essentially whatever you desire although that can be it doesn't shapeshift it projects an image but yeah right it's a telepathic snare essentially uh meant to lure you in so it portrays something desirable and in the narrator's case he sees you know a girl that he loves back home uh and that's actually the the subject of the second book the valley of dreams it's basically a continuation of that there's a whole valley of those tentacle horror monsters uh he actually meets tweel by saving him i'm gonna say him uh, from uh, from it uh, and um, from one of those things, and later he falls afoul of them in the second story. 
there's also uh, he talks about how there's sort of a strange silicon-based life form that builds like it builds a shell around itself and moves very in the shape of a pyramid. Yeah, yeah, it's in the, the shape pyramid of pyramid. Yeah, and it leaves it leaves behind these little shells that are like pyramids, uh, and it with keeps the top very... broken off. Yeah, and there's there's a line of them going back literally millions of years, getting gradually bigger. Like it's a right. really slowly moving creature that just moves along, builds a pyramid around itself, breaks out, uh, moves a little further, and builds another pyramid, and goes on forever. Right, and it's not even like it doesn't react to anything. Like it doesn't try to. React, interact with them at all and it you know he suggests that it's you know thousands and thousands of years old and it's it's basically a almost a robot except it's organic but it's you know it's it's essentially just been building its own little shell for 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 millennia it's also um, theorized that it came from space from the spores that it, that it leaves out hmm. so it's not even native to mars unlike the other creatures right and then eventually he runs into these uh, creatures who uh are sentient and they build, but they don't sort of react very heavily to people around them. Uh, they're sort of a hive mind. Um, he, you know, he stands, if he stands, they're, they're, they're running around carrying hand carts. So they're obviously, oh, they're shaped like barrels with, with four tentacles coming out each side with pinchers on the end. Right. And eyes around the tentacles as well, but they, uh, you know, they, they scurry around. I couldn't help but think of the doozers in Fraggle Rock. Actually, uh, they just run around building and, and, and actually, uh, extracting different you know rubbish both waste materials and everything else and dumping them into like a big machine mill that they have down down in the uh in the the cellars of their uh of their uh inhabitation uh which uh is used for like basically to make uh i guess you'd call it fertilizer for them because they're plant-based um and uh they only get hostile when um he uh he the, the narrator discovers a weird kind of jewel that they have, uh, which seems to produce healing radiation. It seems to ge generate uh, healing, and he or, takes or it that. kills it kills uh, 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 dead right, tissue. Sorry. So it might be a cancer cure. Is the idea right? Right. It kills. So yeah, it makes sorry, his it wart wart fall off and that sort of thing. Right, and and uh, and it makes his pain cease and stuff like that so it's it, so he tries to steal that for its value and that's when after, up to this point they've been completely ignoring him uh well not ignoring him because he stands in their way and they 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 one of them tweaks his nose and when he tries to talk to them he says we are friends and that, uh, then every time they see him they go we are friends even ones who had not you know been there or yeah. met other ones who had been there it's just they seem to be a hive mind and they just uh, eventually after one tweaks his nose he says ouch and they start adding we are friends. Ouch. Yeah, that's that's all they say. Um, so it's very strange. But but when he takes the healing crystal, they actually start to uh, assault him. Up to that point, they just ignored him. Um, so then they he and Tweel are kind of fenced in, but they they manage to get away because the expedition shows up just in time to save them. And he did he did actually get away with one of those uh, healing crystals. So it was uh, it was it was worthwhile. Um, yeah. So that's the first story. I just wanted to say one of the things. Or the, the thing I really liked about these, other than the sort of creature descriptions, which are really fun, is um, uh, Tweel. Um, uh, you have here the uh, uh, John W. Campbell quote, uh, write me a creature who thinks as well as a man or better than a man, but not like a man. And that really describes Tweel pretty well, because uh, he's, he's 
intelligent, as intelligent as a human, or possibly, probably more intelligent than a human. Um, but he, there's something that just doesn't connect between the two of them. There's, um, there's some sort of gulf. Like uh, their language is doesn't never has the same word for, you know, twice sort right. of thing. Um, right. And yeah, he's um, got there's a different many. You have a completely different word for something if it's like a hot day versus a cold day, right? That kind yeah, of yeah. But that extended, you know, really far. So, um, so the the uh, the narrator who's um, named Dick Jarvis. Um, uh, can't make head nor tails out of anything Tweel says, but Tweel picks up some human words and, and repeats them. And yeah, Tweel is able, I, I like this, Tweel is able to convey uh, the concept of intelligence by going 1-1-2 and then 2-2-4, two, two, which means, you know, like he's showing the counting and, and sequences. And yeah, so they understand math and logic. Or, right. You know, and just with only a few words, he's able to say, yeah, oh, that thing is, he goes 1-1-2, yes, 1-1-2, Yes, like, and that's how he yeah, shows. Two, yeah, that thing can add, and that, yeah. that's an intelligent being, basically. Yeah, right? or uh, two, two, four, no, which means it's it's intelligent, but not in um, in a way that that we can't comprehend. So the barrel people are um, sort of even more incomprehensible to humans than Tweel is. Right, and and yeah, it's it's very. You know, but yeah, he's that. That was that's the thing that grabbed everyone about this this story is that uh, that the quote, by the way, is Isaac Asimov was giving the credit. Well, it's a, it's a Campbell quote, but he Asimov applied it to Martian Odyssey, and he said, you know, it's this is one of the first stories we've read that actually portrays alien aliens, right? Like they're actually they don't feel like humans at all, and and they're you know as opposed to well, you know, the Tharks of Mars who are you know, in most ways, they are alien. They are human. Like you can re relate to them as humans. Um, so that's one of the things that that this story was a bit of a groundbreaker for was to really open the doors of well, here's what you know, an alien world would be really alien. It would be really strange. People had t played around with it. Uh, yeah. But so but this now is they're like, trying to make um, it plausible, basically. Yeah, we're we're not. Uh, these seem to be the dominant species on the planet. We're we're not sure about that since the story only covers sort of a small portion of the planet but the Tweels people uh, who we learn are possibly called the Thoth are um, seem to be the dominant species and they're not they don't look like humans at all they're, they're very um, so it sort of um, goes against what we what we see in a lot of science fiction with you know the rubber forehead aliens or what have you though right. uh, in terms of the personality uh, this did remind me of the uh, uh, oh, what the meme aliens from Star Trek from the one Next Gen mm. episode? What are those guys <laughs> called? Tamarians. Yeah. Or the children of Tama, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Or you know the uh, Shaka when the walls fell, guys. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, just the fact that their their language is very strange and, and but hard but, to yeah, stra but yeah, strange. But yeah, the, the, the thing is, they... like, Dick Jarvis though he gets like he and. Tweel become really good friends. Like yep. he essentially, by the end, he's literally like in the second story when he sees Tweel again. They basically, he almost breaks down crying. He's so happy to see him. Um, yeah, it's it's significant. I think by the way that it's called a Martian Odyssey, and he's well, he's not directly imitating the Odyssey. Uh, you can see that echoed in the story, right? Like he he gets a companion who he, he travels with, which I guess it makes it more like a Dante than than the Odyssey. But that that definitely has the feel of 
the Iliad and the Odyssey in some ways. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, he, a, it's he, a much shorter distance, but yeah. Yeah, and the the thing the the uh, the, the 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 dream beasts, as he calls them, um, they yeah, echo, they're very they much sirens. Of, yeah, yeah, or or the lotus eaters, if you like. Yeah, uh, there's an echo of that, and and. Uh, you know, he does end up going into the underground of the barrel creatures, which is, you know, traveling into the underworld. So uh, you can see that maybe the actual, the, the original literary Odyssey affected this uh, subtly. Not, not, not to the point where he just put the Odyssey in outer space and called it a day, uh, in which case it wouldn't be as memorable a story. But you can see that, like, that was kind of his intent, I think, initially. Yeah, which is kind of kind of cool, but but it is worth noting that like this is like a new step forward for plausibility for aliens and and beings in the solar system. Yeah, we we go into one of uh, the cities of Twill's people, and uh, we discover that possibly they interacted with the ancient Egyptians, which is uh, early version of the ancient astronauts thing, uh, which I'm right. not really a fan of. But this was like, you know. Yeah. Before it had acquired a lot of its racist ideas, mm-hmm. um, that actually well, seems of course, to. Of course, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft used that as well. Like that. Yeah. That seemed to be gaining some traction in the 1930s. That idea yeah, yeah. of the, ancient aliens. The earliest version uh, I seem to have come across is Garrett P. Service's uh, unauthorized sequel to War of the Worlds, uh, in which Thomas Edison invades Mars. Um, it presents uh, the Martians of that story as having conquered ancient Egypt. Uh, and that the Sphinx originally had the face of one of the uh, one of the big-headed Martians from that book. Um, yeah, there's a cracked article from a while back that says all all the um, uh, all your favorite science fiction tropes were invented by a hack. And basically going through this this one book and describing all the ways it was sort of the first to describe certain ideas like spacesuits and stuff. Right. It's kind of amazing because it's it's not a good book. Hmm. What, what anyway. was the book we're talking about here? Uh, Edison's Conquest of Mars. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's it's um yeah the ancient alien thing. I mean that. Are uh, yeah we we need to try and pin down when that trope <laughs> originated, but it's certainly that, in that, full like force I said that seems to be the the earliest version uh, that I've been able to find. There's also uh, we'll talk about it in a few episodes, but. Um, uh, to Venus in five seconds has a variation on that, but it's not aliens from traveling to Earth. It's the other way around. But yeah, Egyptians traveling to Venus <laughs> and meeting aliens, <laughs> which is more like that Futurama gag. Yeah, right. They, the Egyptians taught us the about <laughs> the ability to build pyramids. Um, anyway, so but yeah, moving on. Um, so the final story we were going to talk about was the Sentinel by Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, of course, Arthur C. Clarke's probably the most well-known of the, well, other than Voltaire, I guess, of the people we just listed here. Um, <clears throat> anyway, the Sentinel is the basis for 2001: A Space Odyssey. Uh, at least it was, it was sort of what seems to have uh, triggered the whole thing off. I mean, really, what happened was that uh, Kubrick got Clarke to write a whole uh, story, and they they worked on it together, and it spun out of the Sentinel as the basic idea. Uh, in that story, it's very short. Uh, you know, there are uh, people, an expedition goes to the moon um, and they discover an ancient pyramid built on the moon, which was clearly not meant to be, clearly not a natural formation. And it's clearly something built by someone not human. And it's clearly, well, not clearly, but they eventually discover it's millions and millions of years old. Um, 
uh, I described it a little at the beginning. That that was a, that was a quote from the Sentinel, um, and uh, just they discover that there is a uh, you know that they they end up destroying it, and the the narrator speculates that by doing so they've signaled that's what it was meant for. It was a signal to someone who'd been through millions of years ago, and it showed that hey, by the way. Um, we've discovered how to go to the moon now and how to destroy your, your, uh, your Sentinel. And therefore we're now an intelligent enough species to be worth talking to. Um, and he, you know, with a bit of maybe a bit of a sinister edge. Um, and of course you can see how that fed all the ideas of 2001 space odyssey, but that actual story, uh, is compressed into one scene in the movie. Uh, and there's, there's not even any dialogue. It's just the, the humans on the moon coming out and, Finding in that case it's the monolith they change it to the monolith, um, and that sort of triggers the events of uh, of of the movie where they travel out to Europa. Um, but um, the uh, and uh, the idea of like an ancient supremely intelligent visitors, uh, as we mentioned, I mean that is something you see in Lovecraft. Um, it's interesting because most people wouldn't tie this kind of thing like 2001 Space Odyssey to H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, and yet you can see the continuity of ideas there. You can see how, uh, oh yeah, there were ancient beings long before us who were vastly different, vastly more intelligent, arguably, uh, used us as playthings, essentially. Not, you know, in Lovecraft, it's completely sinister and ominous. In, um, in Clark, maybe it's a li- and, and Kubrick, it's maybe a little more hopeful because they're doing this on purpose to, uh, you know, to, to, to help, uh, humanity uplift humanity as it were um i by the way i've read the book version of 2001 space odyssey which isn't um it's not a novelization per se like clark and and kubrick actually wrote it like they were writing the story together and then clark sat down and wrote the novel and kubrick obviously wrote the film and 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 filmed the film um if you read the book it actually it, it clarifies a lot of things that are otherwise left mysterious in the movie like some of the stuff that's happening in the uh in the dawn of dawn of time parts where uh, the, the, the primitive, the hominids are, uh, you know, like the, when they all start freaking out, when the, the monolith hits them, um, they basically like one of the things they do in the, in the book is they makes them tie knots out of the grass and, and do, do complicated sort of dexterous tasks that shows that they have the capacity to like use their brains and fingers to manipulate the environment essentially. Um, and yeah, they- interesting. Um, I, I knew that about the, that the book explains a lot of stuff in the movie and that's one of the reasons I've never read it. Uh, cause yeah. I like the mysterious stuff in the movie. I like, yeah. I like, I like, uh, not having a firm answer on a lot of this stuff. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and one of the, actually one of the cool things in, uh, speaking of, as we were speaking of things on the sun, that's something, uh, that, uh, Bowman glimpses in his final journey once he, opens he travels into the monolith um in the in the original it, it, it he sees beings on the sun which is interesting that there are so, so, there are civilizations of like energy beings that can actually live on the sun and may or may not be the monolith builders although we of course we don't get a very good look at the monolith builders in the book either um uh, i and, did uh, see um uh, 2010 the movie adaptation um which has um uh, Jupiter being turned into a second sun by monoliths, right. yeah, um, and and yeah. also that the uh, the black spot on Jupiter is monoliths, right? 
Monolith. Which makes, which makes more sense than it being, uh, you know, a forest, which is uh, I've come across in, in at least one story. That right. Jupiter is a giant forest planet, and that's why the, 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 the lines sort of shift, because that's like changing seasons. Right. <laughs> but yeah, but 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 you know, it's it, it just is interesting that we're still doing with like, hey, maybe there are beings on the sun, just like you were talking about. Yeah, um, there's a future M episode with with a sun creature. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always you know that's an idea. Again, you know, it's it's just funny that what we go we go through it. It's like, and then he then Cerno de Bergerac travels to the sun and meets sun creatures. Ha ha ha. But now in you know the serious sci-fi, yeah. we're talking about how that could possibly happen. And it, it just it like I say, this this really shows the shift in values and ideas in science fiction over a couple hundred years, basically. Like it was it was almost a means to be silly, but you know, say serious stuff, but in a silly way. Uh, that's sort of how that's that's how the the, the genre was originated. But um, you know, as it as it goes forward, it becomes like it, thanks in part to Joseph Campbell. Uh, he was a big instigator of this, like the idea that no, let's 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 actually frame it as scientific. And Jules Verne before him as well. They wanted to actually deal with the science as a real thing and take it seriously and not just have it be like a, a, a thinly veiled excuse to to vent your philosophical opinions, basically. Oh, you Even mean John though, Campbell, right? Not Joseph Campbell? Oh, yeah, John Campbell. Not sorry. Joseph Campbell. I was confused Campbell. there. Sorry. Was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he, he went in the other direction, if anything. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us on this new spin around the sun. But it's time we were blasting off. As always, we're Adam Prosser, gas giant extraordinaire, and Philip Rice, a small frozen chunk of rock orbiting somewhere past Pluto. Our spaceship engines were kept well piled with coal by our engineer and producer, Alex Ross. And our theme song was by Jack Furick and his astounding interplanetary orchestra. Um, just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. If you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast uh, a week early every time. Uh, it also gives you bonus material, cut footage, illustrations, comics, all kinds of other things. Oh, the bonus uh, episodes we did in the break? Yeah, well, that, that's what I was about to say. If you yeah. uh, were listening over the last couple of months, you know we have uh, a few special bonus episodes we've recorded available for, for subscribers only, uh, where we look at uh, a, a couple of different short stories that were significant, the stuff that inspired The Terminator, uh, the, um, the stories that gave birth to Red Sonja, and... Um, uh, what was the first one we did? Um, oh, the, Black Vampire. Oh, Black Vampire, what, one of the very first vampire stories. Um, so, uh, yeah, they're, yeah, they're kind of interesting. Yeah, uh, and we call them minisodes, but all but one of them are over 40 minutes, I believe. So like, they're, <laughs> they're basically full-length episodes. Yeah, well, this ended up being uh, an over an hour long episode. So, uh, at least for again, this is this is going to be the uh, the special extra long edition for uh, pot, for Patreon. That's another thing you get. Uh, you get longer versions of some episodes. Um, uh, so there's another reason to subscribe. Um, so if you just go to Patreon uh, to uh, Patreon.com/slash um, Spearhalfock for Philip or uh, Phantasmic Tales with a PH. Uh, for me, uh, or you could just search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's, or you could go to neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe, which has all the links that we use, uh, and you can follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me, and Spearhafok with an F, A, for Philip, um, 
we're always spouting off on Twitter. Tw- Philip has his uh, his has an entire thread of uh, translating the stuff we read into Simpsons jokes, into <laughs> Simpsons memes. Um, so until next time, this is What Mad Universe signing off from beyond the mysterious tenth planet and wishing love and peace to every crazy life form in the solar system. Mm-hmm.